HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. I'm Tim Gunn, author, educator, and Project Runway mentor, and you're listening to Heritage Radio. Welcome back to another episode of Magnifico.com, the weekly podcast featuring conversations in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. This podcast is an extension of my blog, Magnifico.com, and that's Magnifico.com, and my book, also called Magnifico, your head-to-toe guide to ethical fashion and non-toxic beauty. Each week, I sit down with leaders and makers and designers at the forefront of sustainability to discuss their journeys and motivation. I'm your host, Kate Black, and this is our final episode of season three. She was one of my first guests in season one and had just finished taping Project Runway Fashion Stars for her startup, Fab Scrap. And here we are almost a year later, and I want to check up on Jessica Schreiber. Welcome, Jessica. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. So we couldn't talk details last time, but since it aired months ago, now we can talk about the show. You pitched Fab Scrap as an idea in front of a panel of fashion industry executives, including Katja Beauchamp of Birchbox, Christine Hunsicker from Gwinnie B, Rebecca Minkoff, and Gary Wozner. Right. So, I mean, for those who didn't see it, what happened? Um, I think the biggest change was they really influenced my decision to go nonprofit. Um, and when I said that that was something that I could make work legally and was interested in. Then three of the four panelists um, made not investments, but large starting donations to Fab Scrap. So um, Gary Wassner, Rebecca Minkoff, and Christine Hunsicker have board seats. And through that, um, Fab Scrap started with $65,000. And what was, the, what was the motivation for making it not-for-profit? Why, what was that kind of that conversation about? Um, I think... For them, they didn't see this being like a billion dollar business that was going to have a huge return on their investment, but they did see the value in it. And then for Fab Scrap, I think it really incentivizes designers to participate because now they can write off the service fee for um, recycling their fabric scraps. Amazing. And then for those of the listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, what does Fab Scrap do? What's your business? Fab Scrap is a nonprofit that picks up uh, textile waste from businesses in New York City. So we work with fashion design companies, 
interior design, even now the entertainment industry, like Broadway movie production. Um, and then we recycle those scraps either by making them available for reuse for students, artists, crafters, or the smaller pieces get shredded and become insulation. And why does a city like New York need a business like yours? Um, I think it's because there's not a lot of green infrastructure for commercial businesses. On the residential side, you can put your stuff at the curb. There's a bunch of drop-off locations for garments. But for a business to recycle, it's not always as clear and easy as it is for a resident. And so having said that, because I think that's actually the case in a lot of cities around the world, why did they not think that this had global scale? Like, I don't understand why (laughs) they thought that this was just going to be a small little service. I mean... I, I agree. I, I see the global potential for this. I mean, even we're just finishing up our first year in operation, and I probably get asked weekly, when can you be in L.A.? I've had a ton of requests from Toronto, Vancouver. Um, I've spoken to people in uh, Europe who are all interested in something like this because this waste, this like commercial textile waste, exists anywhere where clothing is being made. And so what's it look like? Like, so somebody calls you and they're like, hey, we'd like to be part of the program. What is it that fashion brands kind of typically have as waste? I would say the vast majority of what we get are fabric sample cards or fabric headers. So like when you go to a textile show and you're looking through the different fabric mills, they give you a sample of the fabric and it's stapled to a cardboard header with all the fabric details. I get those by the thousands, thousands and thousands of fabric headers, um, which is great because the fabric is labeled and its content is there, so I know exactly what it is. We also get um, cutting room scraps from small cutting rooms and some production. We're getting mutilated items and mocked up items, so if they're just looking at like where to position a pocket or a stitch, they won't sew the whole al- um, item. They'll just sew a part of it. Um, the mutilated stuff is kind of sad. They'll buy from their competitors and cut a hole out of the back to sample the fabric and throw the rest of the garment away. Um, And then lastly, sometimes brands are getting rid of full rolls of fabric. It's either sat too long on their shelves, it's slightly off for the pattern they wanted, whatever reason, sometimes they're getting rid of full rolls. And so that's where really like the, so let's talk about how it it works. So you give the bags to the designers and then you go and pick it up and Mm -hmm. then you have a whole army of volunteers who help you. Right. And one of the motivations for the volunteers is that they get to take. Yeah. So um, brands just call us when their bags are full. We pick it up. Then we have volunteers who can come in and sort for a three hour shift. Anyone who volunteers to help us sort the fabric gets to keep whatever fabric they like for free. So we have tons of students and artists and emerging designers who want to use upcycled pieces. And if you look on our website, the brands that we're working with, like we're getting really nice fabric in. So um, it's a great deal, a little bit of time for some really nice fabrics that could be really expensive bought retail. Um, And then, yeah, the smaller pieces get sorted so that they can be shredded into insulation. Okay, so I'll bite. So who are some of the brands? (laughs) Um, So not everyone is, like, ready to go public with the partnership, but some of the brands I can talk about, um, Eileen Fisher, of course, Marc Jacobs, we're working with Express, with Mara Hoffman, Lafayette 148, Nautica. Um, Just two weeks ago, we signed with Oscar de la Renta, so we're taking some of their fabric waste. It runs the gamut of, like, big companies and small emerging designers, but all very exciting. There's over 70 brands on board now. And so you kind of got up and running last September or October? September, yeah. Okay, so we're almost on the one-year anniversary. How has the space, you're not in your apartment anymore, what's (laughs) what's gone on with, like, how much inventory are you sitting on, and what's the end-of-life 
because vol- there's not enough volunteers in New York to take it all, is there? Right. And that's why the shredding into insulation is a huge part of what we're doing. So um, I don't have stats as of last month, but as of May, we're over 30,000 pounds collected. Um, and surprising to me, because I thought it would be much less, about half of that is over a yard long and suitable for reuse. So we're keeping about 50% of what we take and making it available to students or shoppers, or volunteers. Um, and then 10% we hold for potential fiber to fiber recycling, and then 40% get shredded for insulation. So we have in our warehouse a reuse room where people can come and shop the fabrics, and that has the rolls and the yards. Um, we now have cones of yarn as well, and buttons and studs and zippers. And then um, if anything's not moving in the reuse room, then we just sort of put it into the, the pipeline for insulation. Interesting. And then you have to have a minimum cell for the insulation, right? It has to be a container or um, a certain weightage? A truckload. Okay. Yeah. Are you there yet or have you? We're close. We'll probably, we'll probably take our first truck um, around August, September. So like right around our one year mark, we'll be delivering our first truckload for Shred. It's amazing. And and can you explain why that that's a good solution for textile waste? Because I think a lot of people feel like shredding is akin to landfill. Um, it's really it's really different. <laughs> I think um, first, this isn't total recycling. Like we can say that this is more downcycling because it's not being reused again in the same way. Um, and so it's being downcycled into insulation. But the insulation that's being created used in interior of buildings can actually help those buildings become LEED certified for using recycled content. So it is contributing to a greener industry all around. I think when you send stuff to landfill, um, you don't always know what kind of chemicals have been used to dye the fabric. A lot of the fabrics that we get are synthetics. Who knows what their decomposition rate is? They could be there for a while. Um, And I also have heard a lot of people, the alternative is incineration which I'm not sure is a great option either. It's, it's really being touted as waste to energy, but I don't know that that's the cleanest way to handle that waste stream. And is that why a lot of the headers have the, the cardboard on it? Is that typically maybe what the Europeans or what some of the mill-generating com- countries are, are doing with the headers? Burning? Yeah. Oh, they're burning full rolls of fabric. Oh. They're like any dead stock, basically, like if particularly the proprietary stuff is what I hear. Um will get burned because they don't want anyone to reuse it or resell it. So it's cheaper to burn it than it is to shred it. And so... Up in in smoke. That's so heartbreaking, (laughs) especially because like McKinsey came out with a stat and you often use the story of stuff stat about how much CO2 or how much energy went into creating the textile in the first place. And what's what's your favorite stat for that? I think it's that for every pound of apparel produced, we're creating two pounds of greenhouse gases. Right. So, so all of this energy went into making it, the textile, and then just to kind of burn it when, you know. It hasn't been used at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little bit of wasteful. It's, it's sad. Um, okay, so let's talk about expansion. So, so now we're one year in. How's entrepreneurial life? Um, it was an adjustment for sure. I think um, I didn't realize how much I would miss working with other people. It's sort of a lonely, a lonely road when you first start and you're on your own. Um, and so now that I'm starting to have interns and like part-time help, that's been really like re-inspiring for me because they're still so excited. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the biggest adjustment was learning to like work alone. Um, 
But that being said, I don't know if I could go back to a nine to five office job. It's really nice to be able to like work when I need to work, where I need to work and like do what I enjoy. That's true. And you just got married? I did in April. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. To your CFO? He is. Yeah. <laughs> all in the family. Keeping it all together. Exactly. Um, and so now that you're, so have you made any hires yet? No, not um, full-time hires. I have someone who's helping me two days a week, um, and then I have an intern who is actually um, from RISD, on fellowship from RISD, so they're helping cover her intern costs. And for those that are listening that think, oh my gosh, let's go to New York and volunteer with FabScrap, how how yeah. do volunteers kind of sign up? Is, there, is it digital, the yeah, process? Yeah, there's a form on our website. You should just fill out the form and we'll send you a calendar of upcoming events. And they're three-hour shifts, either nine to noon or one to four, and you can just choose one that works within your schedule. Hopefully by the end of the summer, we'll be three or four days a week for volunteers. And is it during the week and weekends? Right now, just during the week. Um, we're working on, on getting weekend hours open. So how did the students come then if it's during the week? Um, it's a lot of, well, it's summertime, so that helps. That's true. <laughs> and then um, it, a lot of times teachers that I know will say, like, you'll get extra credit if you go volunteer at FabScrap. I've had teachers bring their whole class to FabScrap to come help. Um, and then I guess, I don't know, some students have more open schedules than others, so they can sort of fit it in when they need to. That's amazing. And so what's going on with client building? Do you, are, do you need to solicit or do you have a, a waiting list or what's going on now? Um, yeah, I'm growing much faster than I expected. So like I said, we're over 70 um, clients now. I would say we probably get seven to 10 new requests a week for someone who needs service in the city. Um, not entirely capable of keeping up with that at the moment. So we are working on an enrollment process that sort of like pushes out that timeline a little bit. So you fill out forms first and then you receive bags and then you'll have pickups. So we can sort of push that out a little bit. But yeah, um, demand is overwhelming. Such a good problem to have. I'm definitely not complaining about that. But um, yeah, we're working on how we can bring in so much fabric and on the other side, sort it fast enough and process it fast enough that it, we're not just building an Everest in my warehouse. Yeah. Do you, um, do you long for the day when it was, when it will be automated or technology will be able to kind of do this grading or sorting? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always think that there's a lot of value in people touching it and seeing it and like knowing what's being thrown away and like having that same heart wrenching moment of like, Oh my God, this is beautiful. Why was this going to get thrown out? So I think the volunteer aspect will always be a part of what we do because people are interested and it's a great opportunity, but the volume that we're getting is really going to need to have a more scalable solution. Um, I think before that tech comes, I'm most looking forward to having a driver so that I'm not the one driving around picking up bags anymore. That'll be the first, the first entrepreneur life. You just get off the, off the bags and off the pickup run. I know, but your clients must be so happy to see you. It's kind of nice to see the founder come around and do all, I mean, not the heavy lifting, but. Well, it's nice, yeah, to check in with everybody. It's usually like once a month I get to see people. And when you said earlier that a lot of um, teachers and professors bring their students by, it actually reminded me we did this innovations in textile eco sessions in the fall, and one of the professors from Pratt had said that she kind of bemoaned the fact 
fact that students and fashion students in particular did not get that kind of textile training that they did in her era. Are you finding that actual fashion students are coming to learn more about textiles or are textile professors coming by to kind of give some good examples, real life examples of blends and and what the market is using? I haven't like seen that specifically I think it's more of like a surprising bonus once they get there so most people are there because they're excited to like help with the recycling and get their free fabric but then I think it's I think it's an exciting bonus for people when they're realizing not only are they learning about textiles and textile codes and what things feel like and what stretch is um, there's also the element of a little bit of trend forecasting because they're opening up bags from these really important brands and seeing what they were sampling and what that looks like for the upcoming season. So I think, yeah, I think there's an element of both that we haven't like expressly advertised, but would be really important for someone who's learning about the industry. And what about innovative textiles? Have you, have you had some things come up in bags where you're like, I wonder what this is? Cause there is like, there is peanut tax now there's mushroom leather. I'm sure brands must be getting samples of that stuff. We've seen a couple, a couple cool things. Um, a lot of like the recycled cotton, recycled poly, um, nothing of that organic nature that you're talking about yet. I'm always, I think, most surprised with all of the different kinds of skins and furs that'll come through. I mean, they're small pieces, but it's still like one was kangaroo. Just like I would have never <laughs> guessed that I would see that. Well, luckily, actually, one of my students at FIT is trying to build a, a, a handbag brand out of remnant pieces of fur. So I'll have to tell her to yes, come by. we have a bunch. Okay, good. Um, okay, I think we need to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back, because I want to talk to you about some new changes that are coming to the streets of New York. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. And we're back. You're listening to Magnifico Radio. I'm your host, Kate Black, and I'm sitting down with Jessica Schreiber of FabScrab. So... The current mayor of New York has finally decided to do some enforcement of a law that's been in place for quite a while. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Right. So what's the law and what's that going to do for your business? So there has always been um, requirements for businesses to recycle, um, specifically metal, glass, plastic, paper. Um, There is a law that if your business waste stream is 10% or more textiles, you're required to recycle those textiles. Um, And then there's also now going to be some additional laws around food waste for certain large, um, like hotels or grocery stores. Um, Those commercial recycling laws have always been on the books. There's never really been enforcement of those laws. And now 
um, as of August 1st, 2017, they're going to start enforcing business recycling laws. And is that because the mayor's office knows that your service exists or is that like, was it <laughs> oh, a kind of man. a, <laughs> I wish I had that much influence. Um, no, it's actually, I think most of the enforcement is going to be around these new food waste laws. Right. Um, cause helping the city go zero waste. It's really important that we're diverting a lot of the putrescible waste. Um, so I think the genesis of this was because they really want to start enforcing on the food waste requirements, but just like a happy accident that this is now going to increase recycling for every waste room. Yeah, but it's also it's hard to, as a like a city legislature or a city council person to kind of push enforcement when there's no solution. Like think yeah. of all these other cities that are really trying to go zero waste as well. But if there's no textile recycling solution, it's a little punitive to be giving out fines, right? Right. And um, I don't know what businesses would have done prior to Fab Scrap. Um, I, I think that a lot of private callers say that they take textiles and then it's sort of a black box of where they take them or what happens to them. Um, and they don't have any reporting requirements. And so there's not a lot of transparency there on the private waste side. Um, so, yeah, I think it would have been really hard for people to comply if there was a big push for enforcement and there wasn't the infrastructure to support it. When you get new clients and you go and pick up, it, are you finding that a lot of them have just been holding on to it? Stockpiles, yeah. Okay. Um, it's usually what it sounds like is like people will hold everything for as long as they can and then they'll kind of like scramble like, where can I donate it? Who can I give it to? And then if they don't find something, usually ends up in the landfill. But always with these really sad stories, everyone says like how heartbroken they are to throw away all of this material. Um, and so usually new clients, they've been hoarding for a while and then we'll pick up and then we leave them with bags so they can sort of do it on a more regular process um, and not hold everything for so long. That's amazing. And now, so I also want to talk to you because uh, I've heard you speak um, kind of in public and on the circuit about EPR. Can we talk about what that is and mm -hmm. what you f how you feel about it? Yeah. So EPR is a type of legislation and it's short for extended producer responsibility. And it would essentially require that people who make products have some sort of responsibility for the in life and disposal of those products. And there's a lot of precedent for this. This is how e-waste recycling works in New York City. Um, manufacturers of e-waste have at least a financial responsibility to help the city with the recycling costs. Um, so I think it was in 2015 when e-waste was banned at the curb. That program of recycling was actually funded by manufacturers of e-waste. Um, I think that there's so much potential there for textiles it would be sort of a big push because who's manufacturing the textiles versus who the retailers are and selling the clothing is is very different. But I do think that people who are creating products need to be held a little bit more responsible for the end of life, whether that's in the design, um, creating something that can be easily like um, deconstructed and broken down into its parts and reused or recycled, or it's in some way not just falling on the taxpayer to pay for collection and disposal and recycling when they have no say in how something was created in the first place or what's in that product. So just making businesses a little bit more aware of sort of the financial and, and environmental burden that consumers have when they're trying to dispose of things. It's so it's every time you talk about it, it, it makes me think about fast fashion because it makes me think about how everybody talks about one of the benefits of fast fashion is how inexpensive it is. And it is it, if you don't take into consideration the taxpayer 
bill for landfill, mm -hmm. which is what's happening because people are are taking these, you know, cheaper clothing and and considering them disposable in their mind. So they're yeah. all kind of clogging up landfills across the U.S. And I, I just heard a really interesting stat to that point. Um, I think it the time frame was five years. And so I think over the last five years, the percentage of textiles in the waste stream has grown by 71% or the like the tonnage of just textiles has grown by 71%, but the overall waste stream has only grown by 6%. So textiles are by far the like fastest growing part of our country's waste stream. Is that a North American stat? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, like, or yeah. maybe it might be U.S. But yeah, it's just so surprising to me. Like, I I can't quite fathom. We've had this conversation on previous shows, and I've had this conversation with previous guests about how I was raised to just put it into donation and and kind of get it into a recycling or upcycling stream that way. And so to have it end up in landfill is surprising to me. But the amount of money that taxpayers have to pay mm -hmm. for haulage, you have you used to have a stat about New York, right? Yeah. Um, so if you just look at textiles in New York City's waste stream, it's 6% of New York City's waste stream. And if you look at 6% of just the pickup and hauling budget of sanitation, not even like personnel and all of that, just the pickup and hauling costs, it's $60 million annually taking textiles from the curb to a landfill. It's, it's insane. And I think given that it's one of the fastest growing parts of the waste stream and cities are bearing the cost of that and taxpayers are paying the cost of that, that's where I think EPR really will fit in. Because for any city that's trying to go zero waste, they're going to be forced to address the textile issue. And when they realize how much they're spending on that, I think the next step is to look at the producers of it and say, like, you have to help us here some way. Yeah. Exactly. And all of a sudden, $60 million in taxpayer doesn't make a three ninety nine t-shirt sound so cheap anymore. Right. Very interesting. Okay, so I think we should give a little background because now you sound super geeky, particularly <laughs> around New York stats. So what's your background before starting FabStrap for anybody who doesn't know? Before starting FabStrap, I worked at the Department of Sanitation. And like geeky's fine. I always say I'm a trash nerd. Um, for the last five years, I was running the city's clothing and e-waste recycling programs. Um, so that was all residential waste. But in doing that, I was learning a lot about what options businesses had or didn't have in the case of textiles. And that's where FabScrap started. So I wanted to talk to you about RFID um, tracking and threads, um, because when I was at um, H&M had their Global Change Award, which is the, for their second year, they give away a million euros um, for innovations around textiles and materials. And one of the winners this year was um, a startup called Content Thread. And what they're trying to do is use RFID tracking so that rather than having the headers on those scraps to say what the content is, you'd have an RFID reader and you'd be able to know who the mill was, like all of the kind of the background story just from a little code in the thread. Well, how do you feel about that? I mean, I think it would be amazing. I think it would be awesome that not only could you scan the item and the thread and the code and it would tell you what the item was in terms of its like fiber content, um, but to also know who produced it, both mill and then like what company and potentially even the retailer and then past that, like how long someone had used it before it went into landfill. Like, I think that the data that could come from that would be so incredibly interesting in terms of not only how something is produced, but also how it's used. Um, because I don't think that that's data that totally exists right now. I know their estimate is like people only wear something seven times before they throw it out, but 
we I mean this we would really be know. like really concrete details for that so it's true yeah and I'm thinking actually about an interview I did with Beyond Retro a few um, episodes ago and he was talking about how all the clothes track to like um, global um, sorting centers and wouldn't it be really interesting to just kind of even watch the footprint of a garment after like how many times it ended up in in reuse how many which countries it ended up in reuse and then yeah. where it kind of went for its final final life yeah I mean and that's that's I guess my nerd part being so excited about the data that you get but also just the efficiencies of the reuse sector if something was able to be sorted by a quick scan right now both pre-consumer what I'm doing with like unused fabric and post-consumer um, garments whenever they're being sorted for reuse every single piece has to be touched by a person they're either evaluating like what's in this fabric on my kind on my side or on the post-consumer side they're evaluating like is this fabric or this garment still in good enough condition to reuse or resell but all of that is still done by like a person picking up each and every piece and it's super inefficient um and so even just the efficiencies and like making this a real circular model that that could be huge exactly and for that we definitely need digitization but speaking of data so you're now like one of the only people who know kind of numbers for commercial waste in north america for commercial textile waste i don't i haven't found anyone else who's studied it in this way and we're keeping we're keeping really diligent stats as we sort, um, both so that we can give those back to our clients. I think it's interesting information for them, but also for us as like a cumulative report to be able to say like, this is a really small piece of the pie. This is only 70 designers in one city, but it's a piece of the pie that at least we can start to describe because it's not been described before. That's very exciting. That's very exciting. Okay, so last year you got this influx of cash from your new board members. What would you do if you got another influx of cash? Um, I know, <laughs> I know there's a need in other cities and I think like in a couple of years, I would love to have fab scrap operational in other cities. But like right now, what I like really excites me is potentially having a retail location so that we can sort at our warehouse and continue operations at our warehouse. But like to be able to sell secondhand fabric and, um, make it easier for people to access it and see that it's such nice stuff and it's full rolls or it's these like really great yards that could still be reused in small quantities. I think putting that next to like a retail location, the same way that like you could go to a Goodwill or go to a Salvation Army to shop thrift for furniture and garments. I would love to have a spot where people could shop thrift for design. Um, the other benefit of having like a retail location, it would be drop-offs. So for students or small designers who don't want to totally sign up for service, um, giving them a drop-off point would be really cool. So that obviously hire a driver, hire some help internally for, um, all of our growth. But yeah, I think, I think where I'm most excited right now is like getting this fabric into the hands of people who can reuse it. And you make a really good point because small designers are probably also sitting on their own stockpile of, of waste and yeah. everything else. And wouldn't it be cool if like, if you brought in your scraps for recycling, you got a further discount on already discounted secondhand fabric and it just sort of keeps the loop going. I love that. Okay. So what's next for, fa not, not the dreaming money, <laughs> but in the real life, what's next for, for you um, in for, your second year? Like, yeah, I think, um, I'm really excited to sort of, um, 
explore working with the schools. Um, three or, there's three or four fashion schools in New York City that I would like to like bring in and work more closely with, both taking their fabric scraps, providing fabric scraps, the education around textile waste. I just think there's a lot of collaboration that can happen at the schools. Um, I'm really excited to potentially start making some hires um, so that I have some more help and we can have the warehouse open five days a week for volunteers all the time. And I want to start reaching out to more volunteer groups and getting getting more people in the warehouse. And are you limited to just the fashion schools? Are you open to high schools as well? Because I know oh, a lot yeah. of the, the schools in the city have fashion programs. Yeah, okay. that would be great. Awesome. So this is the end of my third season. I can't Congrats. believe it. Thank you. How fast the year has gone. Um, so I've been asking everybody three quick questions. So if your life had a motto, what would it be? Um, there's a quote that I really like. I used it on my grad school application, and now I have a tattoo <laughs> based on it. This is very serious. Okay, um, go. Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would fall to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Wow. Because I know you. That's so perfect, you. So I have a little apple tattoo. Wow. Also because I love New York, but it works for both. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's so you. Okay, and who or what inspires you? Um, this, one, this one's hard because I think what gets me so excited is when other people are, like, jazzed up about something. And lately I've just been meeting so many people who um, are doing such great things in this space in, like, sustainable fashion and so creative and, and passionate about it and like that that drives me and inspires me because when I start to feel cynical or, or pessimistic about what's possible it's nice to look to people who have seen the same obstacles and still remain engaged. That's true. That's true. And what's next on your bucket list? What do you kind of, aside from the dreamy stuff for work, what else are you yeah. looking forward to? Um, my husband has never been out of the country so I think um, and next year I turn 30 so I think we're going to take a big trip. Um, I'd like to go to Greece. Um, I think he wants to stay in more English-speaking areas like London. Um, but Europe, basically, I think that's bucket list is getting to do more traveling. That would be amazing. Good luck with that as an <laughs> entrepreneur. That's the challenge. Travel and entrepreneurialism. Stepping away is, is hard. but They speak a lot of English in Greece particularly in in the big island so you won't have any trouble i mean it is my birthday i should get to choose right and it's <laughs> one of the most beautiful places i've been there as well um okay so how can so you kind of did a call out to schools volunteers how can people get in touch with you and learn more yeah um there's a bunch of contact forms on my website. So whether you know somebody who wants to recycle fabric or works at a brand, you know somebody who wants to reuse fabric or works at a brand who's upcycling, you want to volunteer, you know groups who could come in, all of those forms, it's one contact form on the website. Um, also follow on Instagram that we're sharing all the time pictures of the new fabrics we're getting in, of volunteer groups coming through, the brands that are joining. I think seeing all of the clients is exciting because then you sort of know the quality of fabric that we have um, for reuse. So, yeah, website and Instagram, those are our two big. And Angel Gifters, anybody who could help you with your, your kind of bucket list about a retail spot, also with a contact form? Yeah, okay. um, there's info at fabscrap.org, um, and I'm the one who receives those, so that's fine. And then, um, yeah, anything related to fundraising, we're going to be working on fundraising in year two. So after September, we're going to start 
looking at more fundraising projects. Great. And the Instagram is fab underscore, underscore scrap? Fab underscore scrap. Okay, yeah. great. Thank you so much Thank to my you. guest, Jessica, for joining me in the studio today. Thank you all for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network, to my engineer, David Tadashore, and to Metro Jesus for our music. You can also find and subscribe to Magnifico Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find great podcasts. And if you like what you hear, kindly give us a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts and also a rating. It helps us rank higher amongst uh, conventional fashion podcasts and to push these conversations forward. Don't forget to swing by Magnifico.com and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.